Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. Yep, I'm Peter Switzer. And with this episode of The Switzer Show, I shine the spotlight on a guy who started as a battling real estate agent in the western suburbs of Sydney a long time ago in the 1970s and went on to own one of the biggest real estate brands in the country. The guy is Charles Tarby. He's the founder of Century 21, the real estate business here in Australia. And I think Charles' story is a really good one that a lot of people would get a lot of inspiration from it, even though he can at times be self-deprecating unnecessarily. I'm going to expose the real successful Charles Tarby. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, it's a nice introduction. What does self-deprecating mean? As you know, I'm an uneducated real estate agent from the western suburbs of Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> well, self-deprecating means that you... No, nah, some... <laughs> come on. Come on. I just, I just explained it myself. Yeah, okay. You, you did go to a good Christian Brothers school in Goulburn. They would have taught you self-deprecation, wouldn't they? I, I did. Oh, yes, of course. Of course, um, they taught me lots of things. But lucky, luckily for me, I was a late bloomer, so I wasn't very attractive at the time. Oh. I, mean, I, I, I haven't bloomed nicely uh, over the years, but still. Yeah, I did go to boarding school at St. Patrick's College in Goulburn, which... I'm very proud of the fact that I went there, and uh, I, I grew up in a small country town called Crookwell, mm. uh, just outside of Goulburn, northwest of Goulburn, and I call that my hometown, even though I was born in Sydney. I, I call Crookwell my home. Yeah, and and you're of a Lebanese family, and at the same time, another uh, potentially famous Lebanese family was living oh, there. Potentially, <laughs> well, actually, John Simon, his his family were in Crookwell he, as well. He uh, unbelievably, he was born in Crookwell, John mm. was, uh, but his family moved around a fair bit. They'd build businesses, sell them and move to the next town. But my parents knew his parents, mm. uh, but John is not a lot older than me, but he's old enough, older enough to for me to not have known him because I think there's probably about a seven-year age gap with myself. So, mm. and he, so it's, you know, as you know, somebody who's seven years older than you when you're a young kid is... Um, Oh. Big gap, a big gap. Yeah, yeah, big gap. But you, you must be seen by the, the Crookwellians as being two of the famous sons of their, their hometown. Well, I didn't get invited to open the Crookwell show. Uh, John did. <laughs> so uh, I, I, the guy came up to me uh, at the top pub there. I'd sponsored the, the Binder Picnic races for a few years, just for a bit of fun, and, and took the team up there. I remember the top pub, a guy tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you, you know John Simon, wouldn't you? In that crookwell voice. And I go, hey, Charlie, you'd know John Simon, wouldn't you? And I said, yeah, I do. And uh, and, and he said, look, I'm the president of the crookwell show. You reckon you, you could get him to open it for me? Now, uh-huh. I, I remember being on the harbour with John. It was only once. He only ever invited me once on his boat. And uh, and I said, John, have you ever been back to Crookwell? And his arms opened up wide and he showed, you know, spread out Sydney Harbour. And he said, why? Why would I want to leave this? <laughs> and so uh, when I asked him if he'd like to open the Crookwell Show, his, his initial reaction wasn't as positive as, as one might suspect. But he did get the he did get the chance a second time, uh, 
Um, and uh, he was on his way. And unfortunately, there was so much fog around the Sydney area. He was he was going to go there in a helicopter mm. uh, because he had because he had other appointments. And uh, the fog uh, was so strong, he couldn't get there. So he still hasn't made it back to Cork. <laughs> okay, right. <yeah. laughs> All right, let's 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 you know get away from your Crookwellian associations, and, and and answer the question: How big is Century Twenty One in Australia and New Zealand? It's not as big as um, it could be, nowhere near it. And uh, and if I go back a few years, we we would have had more shop fronts, uh, but things have changed. And uh, there's a lot more going on now in my organisation uh, in regards to creating a uh, a standalone independent operator that can move around without having to have a shop front, mm. which is what, and not just if there's a few models in Australia like that, but uh, what, what COVID has already uh, also taught us, that yeah, mobility is possible. And, and we've been a web-based organisation for a long time. So there's, there's hundreds of officers there, but nowhere near. It could be, it could be twice the size of what it is. And I just think this is why I always feel as though I've never done the right job. I've never quite gotten to it. And, in, in, and as you know, Peter, uh, often the breakthrough in success is... Uh, just like a, a piece of tissue paper, you can go from one extreme to the other, and and I'm waiting for that for that pyramid year for that cycle mm. uh, to be the cycle that gets us to the other side of, of being a far more substantial organisation in the sense that uh, I'm talking in terms of numbers uh, with with our new models that we've launched. Mm. Um, I've always focused on the consumer, and that's probably to my detriment. Uh, my daughter taught me. Many, many years ago, when I had Combined Real Estate, which is a company I started out at Penrith in 1977 when I was a 21-year-old, and um, I lived by the philosophy then that anything is possible when you don't know what you're doing, Peter. Mm. If I knew what I was doing, I'd probably talk myself yeah. out of it. Yeah. And and uh, and so um, I had the chance to, to buy Century 21, and I'd grown Combined Real Estate to 50-plus offices. And I said to my daughter, who was 11 years of age at the time, um, you know, I was just joking, thinking that she would just ask me, what, what, you know, what are you talking about? That she'd been around the company since she was born and at office openings when she was a month old. And I said, Sarah, I've got a chance to buy Century 21. What do you think? And she just looked at me. She said, I think you should do it. It was like an uh, unbelievable reaction. Mm. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? She said, well, combined real estate's like Australian Wonderland, which is theme park, was the theme park west of Sydney. Yeah. She said, lots of people know it, but to me, Century 21 is like Disneyland. Everybody knows it. Mm. And she, she'd seen it on television programs and movies and God knows whatever else because it's a, it's a global organisation with over 140,000 salespeople in over 80 countries now. And when she said that to me, it was really weird because everybody else had told me not to do it. You know, Century 21 was American-based or Century 21 had problems when they came to Australia and so on. And my daughter saw it from a consumer's perspective. And to um, our credit, if you talk to consumers in the street, they know the brand. Mm. Um, the, the industry, which is what I didn't focus on, uh, to my detriment, is really where we need it to be as well because the industry believes its own publicity. And uh, if, if you get up in front of an audience of real estate practitioners and you, you, you talk about what can be done and what should be done, well, they leave that room and they're fired up with that thought, I didn't focus on that. I didn't focus on the industry as much as I did on the consumer. So the long answer to your question is I believe we could be a lot larger 
by now. And mm. and now the proposition is that the industry is important to us and we're focused on the industry now. So I suspect that, that breakthrough, that tissue paper might be not too far away. So, so Charles, how many uh, real estate agents operate under the Century 21 brand in Australia? Um, now there's over, yeah, now there's over 2,500 uh, sales agents mm. operating in Australia New Zealand. Um, and uh, with the with the independent model that we're creating, so you don't have to open a shop front, we believe that we can double that. Yeah. All right. So, given that, where does Century Twenty One fit into the 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 scheme of things in terms of its reach and its size? Because you know we we know we know of brands that people will remember like L J Hooker and Ray Wise and whatever, mm-hmm. and Century Twenty One's amongst it. Well, where does it rank? We we. Yeah, we always we, we whenever we did our surveys, Peter, we always found ourselves in the top three, mm. depending where where you went. We always found ourselves in the top three, and and that's again from a consumer perspective. So, um, if you look at, at percentages and turnover and so on, we don't rank as well in some areas, and in other areas we rank re- really well. So, if you went down into Melbourne, we we haven't ranked as well as if you went up to uh, Sunshine Coast, mm. where we would easily rank number one. So it, it, it varies from where you go. Uh, and so I still have some very, very heavy competition with the likes of, of LJ Hooker or Rain and Horn or Ray White or Harcourt. They're all very strong competitors, been around for a lot longer than me. Uh, and, and as you know, some of them have been around for 150-some-plus years. Mm. So uh, they're, they're very well-established businesses that I've had to compete against. And, and as you would also know, I don't have any partners or shareholders and there's no no family. It's not a family business. Um, so it's been a, a, a long haul. Mm. I think we've done well, but I think we need we, we can, as overall, we've still got a, long, a lot of work to do. How did a, as you pointed out, you know, a, a, a real estate agent from the western suburbs of Sydney end up with the master franchise of Century 21 for Australia and New Zealand? Mm. Yeah. Um, they were my competition. They did come into Australia with another family initially, and um, it, it fell over. And the Americans um, stepped in on April Fool's Day, 1990, and liquidated the company. Uh, I, I always remember it. And uh, I, I think uh, they targeted my company. They targeted combined real estate in the early days, in the 80s, and they were successful in getting offices to go across to them. Uh, because it was perceived you know, as, as the brand, American, McDonald's, global brand, mm. so on, so on. And and so um, I lost offices to them. But strangely enough, after a short period of time, some of the offices started coming back. And uh, I, I was writing books in the early 90s, and in, in uh, 93 I launched uh, my second book, Listing Rich, uh, a handbook for salespeople. And I was doing a two-day seminar. You'll love the title, How to Emotionally Devastate Your Competitors. <laughs> and uh, I, I had um, uh, a couple of hundred, hundred agents at that uh, two-day workshop. And I invited franchisors because they knew that even though I had some of their people in, in the room uh, that where I was speaking, they knew I supported franchising. And the two chaps turned up in gold jackets, uh, one from uh, corporate US and the other corporate New South Wales or, or corporate Australia. And uh, they turned up and during the lunch break, they asked if they have a word to me. And uh, we're sitting in the middle of a, a, a massive lunch area in a glass boardroom in the gazebo hotel, I think it was called in Parramatta. And people were 
looking across, trying to work out what two men in gold jackets were doing talking to me. Mm. And it was was at that point they said, hey, you look like you, you're becoming a trainer. I said, no, not at all. I use this to recruit. And they said, well, what about the, you want to talk to us about merging businesses? And I said, always happy to. And that's how the process started. So in 93, I went and had a look for the second time because I'd had a look at Century 21 in the early 80s, but they weren't ready to come to Australia. And um, I went there and we, we uh, agreed on, uh, on on a potential opportunity and and uh, in uh, uh, early or later that year, I um, merged combined real estate into Century 21 with an option to buy. And in, on September 29, 1995, the opportunity um, arose when the US government uh, told all insurance companies to remove any asset that wasn't core and MetLife Insurance owned Century 21. And so all of a sudden there were new owners in the US and uh, I went there and as far as they were concerned, I was a pimple on an elephant's thumb uh, in the scheme of things for mm. them and I negotiated a deal to buy it on the 29th of September 1995 to buy the balance and take 100% ownership of Australia. And, and does that effectively mean that you still are answerable to head office in, in the US? I have a franchise arrangement with them, um, mm. and I pay them a modest percentage of my turnover. Mm. Uh, and, and I don't see them; they uh, have got bigger, bigger fish to fry. And of course, Australia is a far more advanced real estate country than any other country in the world when it comes to operating business systems and so on. So they they don't even bother sending anybody uh, in terms of service, and I don't ask for it. Um, but I have a perpetual. A franchise agreement, Peter, in, in that it's not a renewable document. It's, it's there, it's there in perpetuity. And so, um, I do, do with it what I can to keep it growing and moving as a, as a, as a business. How did you even get from being like a, a, a real estate agent who would have worked for somebody to, to the stage where you mm. actually created the combined, uh, real estate group, which had 50 franchises? Just Quickly talk us through yeah. that, those stepping stones. Look, I got a job um, when I came from Cookwell, uh, cleaning flats, waiting for my uni results, and I actually never left the business. Uh, and I I wanted to sell real estate because I used to watch guys pull up at, down at Marigold, was where I worked, Andy Palumbo Real Estate. It was. He's still in existence uh, in Lakemba, very large business. And um, I used to watch the sales guys pull up in, in pretty ordinary cars during the day and at the night time when they're having a little meeting. So pull up in these cars uh, where I couldn't even pronounce the names of them. And I thought, wow, this is where I want to be in sale. At that age, uh, nobody could take you in sale. It's very rare. Um, but I, I saw this job advertised out of Emu Plains, uh, free real estate sales training. And Emu Plains was uh, so far away, you know, in those days, uh, outside of Penrith. That take you an hour and a half plus to get there. So I went to this free sales training and, and uh, I went for a couple of times and they're very clever people and I just pushed them for a job and they gave me a job uh, in uh, Emu Plain. And uh, then the uh, uh, Labor government uh, put a credit squeeze on and I, nobody could borrow money and I ended up losing that job for a very short period of time and I went uh, door knocking uh, for a builder. Uh, to find buyers, and then uh, I got a call to come back. And I worked in that office, and at that point in time, I started to progress well in sales, and the guy who owned then had bought a couple of offices. He had a partnership issue, Ken Innes, uh, a mentor of mine, and that office uh, came up for sale, and I just happened to have bought property and 
made capital gain and uh, I bought the real estate office off him that he needed to sell in Penrith, called Penrith Real Estate, and that was my first office. And and combined real estate came out of that um, because I bought a second, third, fourth and fifth office all under different names uh, and then to bring them under one umbrella, the name combined real estate came up in discussion with the team and I changed those five offices over a weekend into the combined brand uh, from Penrith up to Falkenbridge in the Blue Mountains. And people started noticing it. Other agents started noticing it, and that's how the franchising concept started. Too. Mm. So was there a, an entrepreneurial uh, family influence, or was it something that you just developed off, off your own bat? Uh, look, family, everybody in my family has been in business. Uh, my four older siblings and, and younger brother have all been in business for some time because when I, when I, uh, all I remember is, uh, from at a conscious age was dad was in business. Mm. Uh, and, uh, it, it, so I, I just thought that was a natural progression. Uh, and so, um, when I, uh, when I started to, to progress in sales, the first thing you think of, what's the next step? Um, I had no idea where it would go. I was, I was saying to my son uh, a couple of years back, uh, in a very, it was a very important message for me. Uh, we are putting a, a um, an office seat in the back of his car, so he would have been about 17 or 18, and, uh, and, and, I, and, I just, uh, and it was in Penrith, and I, um, I, just, I just smelt Penrith, and what I mean by that, the heat, the, the, the door knocking I did every day, the whole thing, you know, and I just... And I stopped and I said to my son, Joe, you know, sometimes in life it's fantastic when you don't reach your goals. He said, that's very strange coming from you, Dad. I said, well, you know, Joe, goals are, are restrictive. I, I've stopped, stopped goals setting a long time ago. For me, it's about short-term objectives and long-term vision. And he said, but what's your point? I said, well, there was a shop in Penrith with three shop fronts and I mapped that out in my diary and I've still got my old diaries and I was going through it. I saw it the other day. One shop was going to be commercial, the other was going to be residential and the other was going to be rental. He said, but what's your point? I said, if I'd achieved that goal to build the biggest real sales in Penrith, I'd probably still be there. Mm. And and that's the thing that it was really important for me to, to realise that, that objectives and goals are restrictive and say, I don't know how it got there, but I used to sit there and think about what it would be like to have a big business, to fly around the country in a suit. I didn't know how it would pan out, but that was just sort of the vision I had. So so do you think that having that vision of you, you effectively you've painted a picture of being a successful business owner, um, you know, living a, a good life, but a, I guess a hectic life. That was the kind of thing that really was a part driver to your success? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, you know, people talk about, you, you use the word success. I mean, I know people that don't, don't do what I do and, and they have a family and they live in the suburbs and, and they're far more successful than me because that's what they wanted. Um, I think that when you have a vision, you, uh, and that often when you're a young bloke, and you'll remember it, Peter, you know, we always talk about, oh, we're going to be a millionaire by the time we're 30 and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think our focus was always very heavily on on um, success, and success seemed to be about money. I've obviously since learned over the years that that's not the case, but definitely sit, sitting down, giving yourself a few minutes every day here and there, um, I've got half a dozen things that I'm involved in in business, Peter, and I, I try to mentally picture what they might look like uh, down the track, how I'd like them to look down the track. 
and then I uh, I, I sort of get up and in the morning after having set, set up some short-term objectives the night before, and off I go. Mm. And it's been pretty much like that for, well, um, I started in real estate in 72, so it's coming up to 50 years. It's funny, uh, I was trying to think about you know, when I first met you, and it was 1993. It was uh, the year that your book came out, as you, you, you just pointed out. Yeah. And, and I, I didn't know you from a bar of soap, and it was a, a speech I was doing uh, for, I think, the mascot uh, business association, <laughs> and, you, and you were a speaker on the program, and so was um, the, the, um, the would-be member for the seat of it was the old um, Bowen seat that would be Kingsford Smith, and uh, and then she was the lib, but she, she obviously had a, a tough job because that was a Labor seat. And I remember before you spoke, and you spoke absolutely brilliantly. And I, I, I actually, you know, I was a, more an economist then rather than a, a fantastically entertaining speaker. But <laughs> but you were you were exactly that, and and I was really fascinated about how good you were, and I learned a lot from you oh, that day. You. But that that. That would be MP. She came up to the the rostrum to speak to the audience, and she actually fainted. And I think, I yes, think, that's right. I think that's you right. might have caught her because you know you're always chasing women so. in that. In well, those no, days. no, <laughs> so I'd always always catch my liberal member if I can. You know. <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah, I do remember that now, Peter. You know, if you had not reminded me, I, I wouldn't have recalled that. It was a long time ago. Uh, but you know, that's just that's the funny part about it. Um, presentations, people ask all the time, how do I grow my business? So I said, it's really simple. Just get out in front of the local business community. Go to the Chamber of Commerce, go to Rotary, go to Lions Club, do a talk, uh, offer to give them something. Uh, and in offering give them something, you get their details, you follow through, you put them in your database and you do it. And and presentations were easy for me because um, from a very, very early age, uh, uh, being in front of people and presenting uh, was part of my life, going all the way back to when I was 11, 12, 13 years of age, mm. I found myself in front of people uh, and uh, it, it never left me and I really enjoy it. And mm. people's, people get scared, as you know, with public speaking, but I, I found that the more I presented, the more opportunities were presented to me. And uh, and so that, that way I was able to grow my business. And back in 93, Listing Rich um, was, was launched, second book was launched. And there I was presenting, same mm. thing. Yeah, and, and uh, I I asked him. Yeah. Go on. Sorry, I asked people to come come and who turns up? Century Twenty One. Yeah. Who knows? My competition. Who would have thought my main competition was a company I'd own? Yeah. Good, good point. And I've got to say, uh, recently I was listening to some tapes of a guy who I, I bet you you used to listen to in those days, Zig Ziglar. And yeah, uh, of course, yeah, yeah, and and like a lot of people don't realise that these. These old American experts on communication are fantastic lessons even today, aren't they? They are, and and I listened to as many books and tapes and read as much as I could, and 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 I changed it to suit the Australian climate. I mean, you you know, when when you'd hear these speakers say things like, uh, "Sir, um, Madam, I'm standing out here by the pool." You, I can almost hear the barbecue sizzling, you know. Yeah. And they look, if you say something like that, they look at you and think you're an idiot. So you, you just say, oh, isn't it fantastic out here? Gosh, I can smell a barbie right yeah. now. 
and and that, that, so we just we just took what we could and we Australianized it and it worked incredibly well. Training has been an integral part of my business from day one. It was compulsory in my organisation. It still is for mm. new salespeople to do the twelve week in, that induction program called Twenty One Plus. It's still there, and and it, it, it's. Very much a part of what we do. We've created C21 University. Uh, we've also, as you know, Peter, I, I purchased the rights for Australia and New Zealand for Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate to uh, create a, a lifestyle real estate company. And they've got the Better University. And there's 43 courses on the Century 21 platform that an individual can do in my company, like a TAFE course. And they, they, they can leave the course and come back uh, where they left it off. And, and, and they get... Um, a level of education that you just don't normally get. Mm. Uh, real estate, real estate uh, is, a, is a, an industry that loves to have coaches and trainers and whatever else, but a real education in real estate is not a common thing. Uh, Charles, how important has self improvement been for you? And yeah, and and then have you used that so you become a role model for the people who work with you? I'd like, like to think that. Uh, I'd like to think that having not just uh, education but having experiences uh, around business uh, it qualifies you. It does qualify you. There's, I mean, there's that old saying, which is not completely true, but two types of people in the world, those that can and do and those that can't and teach. And so I'm one of those now that can't and teach, apparently. But uh, the, the thing is that, that experiences give you a level of education that you can't get. So education, whether it's, it's reading books or listening to speakers uh, or visualising uh, what you want to do, and, and some of those things I've lost in the last uh, few years. I'm finding my way back. It's very easy to lose uh, your path. When business goes okay, you make a bit of money to lose your path. So um, I'm back. But what I, what I was trying to say was that experiences count. I bought, uh, as you know, a company called Wentworth, uh, which was 8,000 managements. It would be the biggest individual property management transaction in this country's history for one person. And I borrowed $19 million from Macquarie Bank, and they had my attention. That had my attention for years. And, and it was it was in, in Perth and Sydney and, 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 and um, Victoria as well, Melbourne. And I was running a business with a few hundred staff from Sydney, trying to understand and manage and grow and, and issues and, and tenants upset, landlords upset, loss of management, loss of staff. And I learned so much during that period. Uh, I, I did okay out of it. And when I say okay, um, financially I did okay, but it took me away from my core business mm. in the true sense. But if I stand in front of anybody now and talk about property management, they uh, can't say things like, well, what would you know, mate? And I think that's the best level of education that one can get sometimes. Uh, you can you can um, die in the process if you're not careful, but it is a process that has educated me significantly. Okay, mate. Well, look, I think you've given us some fantastic insights. Um, you started off by you know, telling us how ordinary you were. You were lying. You're not an ordinary performer. <laughs> You're quite an exceptional performer. And I uh, thank you very much for sharing your insights, Charles. Thank you very much, Peter. And that's Charles Tarby. I could have spoken to him for a lot longer, but I got the wind-up, and uh, it's a very, very good story. Um, I've known, As I say, I've known Charles for quite some time, and he's someone who's just continually trying to improve, and that's the, re the end result. 
a great performance. Okay, time for an ad. So it's time to talk about the Switzer Report. And the Switzer Report puts together some of the best stock tipsters in the country and uh, they give you their, their weekly take on what they think looks like good value. We've had some fantastic um, uh, opportunities to uh, share some great uh, buying opportunities. And if you want to uh, become a subscriber to it, it's simply $397 for 12 months. We give you a 21-day free trial to test it out. And if you're interested in um, trying to make money out of the stock market, I recommend it pretty strongly. Just go to switzerreport.com.au slash subscribe. Well, some groups can be critical of the mineral sector, but the Mineral Council of Australia has basically gone green uh, with a climate action plan. To talk about this, we have Tanya Constable, who's the CEO of the Mineral Council of Australia. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Peter. Great uh, to be with you. Yeah, same here, Tanya. Now, when I saw this, I thought, you know, these guys have been under a lot of pressure for a long time. Um, various companies and I guess the group as a whole have have copped it from people of the left and people of the green. And there's been a sort of a demand that mining companies, you know, change the way they operate. And along comes the Climate Action Plan. So I want you to tell us what's behind it all. Well, um, I don't think this is really new from the point of view of the industry being committed to sustain sustainability, Peter, or to or to the commitment that we show uh, in probably the start of two, at the start of two thousand and eighteen when uh, we put out a statement in support of the Paris Agreement. But what the Climate Action Plan does is uh, it it really demonstrates what our continuing action is on climate change and presents a, a plan, uh, the first uh, three-year uh, rolling work plan, which is all about action on climate change. Mm. So I, because I, I work in the industry, I remember around that time, uh, BHP came out with a, you know, we recognise that things have to change and all that sort of stuff, and that was a you know, a big deal for you know the the finance and stock market watching fraternity. But I think a, a lot of the normal mum and dad and young Aussies out there who sometimes think that miners equal you know the the arch enemies when it comes to the climate uh, or to the climate change. I think they might be surprised that you guys are, are going down this road. Um, and uh, I guess from from your point of view, is this your, your you know, bold attempt to, to wave the flag that you are actually fair dinkum about this? Well, the, the world um, is transforming to a net zero emissions future. If you look at what's happening at a global level, uh, countries are making uh, strong statements. Australia has made a strong statement in support of the Paris Agreement. We've signed up to the Paris Agreement, um, uh, you know, when it uh, when it was put forward in, in 2015. So uh, this is our industry's plan. It's a real, uh, real plan based on three core areas, um, uh, largely driven by low emissions technology. Uh, we want to see the increase in transparency 
around uh, climate reporting. And uh, we've got a lot of um, members across uh, the industry. So Minerals Council of Australia um, makes up uh, uh, almost 80% of the total value of production of minerals in Australia. So this is a plan to share all of the, the um, practical knowledge and understanding that is across our companies uh, to help decarbonise as quickly as possible. So uh, this you know, shows our commitment. It shows very clearly three firm objectives with uh, 10, um, 10 actions and, you know, in the first three uh, three years, we've got 30 activities supporting those actions. So, Tanya, how does a, a, a mine or a miner decarbonise? Can you give us an example of how that could actually happen? Well, there's a range of things that are already happening. Um, so, on the mine site, uh, they might be already making the switch to using um, lower emissions um, power sources. Uh, they will, depending on the type of industry they are, they will be trying to be as energy efficient as possible um, by reducing the amount of energy that is being consumed, using it in different ways. Uh, they will be looking at each part of their operation how to make it better, how to make it more efficient, um, how to speed things up um, and use uh, less uh, um, uh, energy. They will be looking at um, at taking some of the um, emissions out of their operations altogether. For example, in coal mining, fugitive emissions are, uh, are a big problem. So how do you use technology to remove those uh, those emissions. So things like automation help speed things up, uh, do it more efficiently. And um, as I said, uh, the use of technology is the way that, um, that we will uh, lower emissions dramatically and remove emissions altogether by the use of different, um, different energy sources. So there's some of the ways that, that we'll do that. In, in your press release, it says the mineral industry works with manufacturing and innovation partners to invent, develop and deploy new techniques and technologies. Can you give us an example of, of how that has actually worked in the real world? Well, on the manufacturing, um, I, I think that one of the things we, we talked about was um, uh, uh, that I have been talking about is um, uh, the use of automation. So we are probably one of the most advanced manufacturing industries uh, in the world in the way that we do business, uh, automating our um, uh, in the way that we might have driverless trucks on um, on a mine site. And what that might do is uh, it um, regulates the way that a truck might move around a mine site um, at the same sort of speed. Um, in the uh, at a very um, uh, making sure that it has the right distances with other equipment, uh, so you get a very um, regulated and automated approach that gives you um, you know better outcomes on safety, better outcomes on energy efficiency, um, and it's those sorts of um, real practical actions that um, that lead to 
better outcome and they significantly lower emissions as you're moving through without um, without losing uh, any sort of uh, efficiency whatsoever. Uh, the ALP and Greens, how they responded to your climate action plan? Well, we've briefed uh, um, the government, we've briefed the opposition. Uh, I'm making my way around uh, various MPs and senators. Mm. Uh, we've talked to state associations, we've talked to some investors and we'll make our way around uh, you know, uh, a whole range of uh, stakeholders. Uh, including non-government uh, organisations that have an interest in, in climate action, so that they understand what the industry is doing. So uh, it's really important to note, Peter, that this is a member-driven plan. All of our members are signed up to uh, to this plan and will um, will showcase the great things that they're doing as individual companies. But as I said before, they'll share their best practices so that we're able to roll them out and um, and get a much quicker and more efficient outcome for our whole uh, our whole industry. So to answer your question, it's been very uh, well received, um, and you know I, I think that some groups are thinking, well, um, the proof is always in the pudding. We'll wait and see. Uh, but we're very committed to this, and uh, you know, with each year that goes by, we'll be making uh, make, making inroads and making strides. Uh, towards um, this plan. What about investor concerns that while it's a, a noble goal to do for the collective good, um, their bottom lines, namely the returns on their investment, might be affected? How are you addressing those kinds of concerns? Well, the, a company will always be thinking about, you know, what is best for their business, um, but they are uh, and they're very mindful of what um, uh, is expected for the capital that they receive uh, from investors. So the Climate Action Plan is actually very good for business because it, uh, you know, they're able to get access to capital, um, as you yeah, as you would well know, and your um, your uh, subscribers would well know that. Uh, that mining is very capital intensive, very high cost. So having this sort of plan um, means that companies will get access to capital and that the cost of the capital is lower because they can prove their sustainability credentials um, and uh, and as part of that, their climate, um, their climate action uh, credentials. So they're lowering the risk overall and that leads to better um, better outcomes in terms of uh, of the, the cost of capital. Mm. Well, I, I would have thought you know uh, this kind of initiative makes your life easier on one level, in the sense that you're going to get a lot more community uh, support for your organisation. There's been a lot of sort of negativity, particularly when the you know the carbon tax was in, and there was all that sort of battle between the miners and and the Labor Party and all that sort of stuff. But how do you deal with some a one-off rogue event like, you know, Rio blowing up uh, an indigenous um, cave with, you know, artifact uh, history connected to it? How does someone like you actually deal with that? Like, obviously, Rio is a very important part of the Mineral Council of Australia. But on the other hand, 
that mistake was not great for the image of, of miners. How, how do you, in that sort of invidious position, Tanya, deal with something like that? Well, I think, Peter, that, uh, that importantly, um, when I started at, at, at the Minerals Council and I started in, in 2018, um, that, so I've been here just two years in a, in a few days, that uh, the, the one thing that, um, that the board um, uh, absolutely said was a, you know, a must-have um, uh, you know, in, in terms of what I would do to lead the, lead the Minerals Council was to uh, make sure that we restored pride in the mineral, minerals industry so that there, you know, it, it, it is all about national pride so that the community can take pride in what the mineral sector of Australia does and how uh, we act. So positioning our industry um, uh, in a very positive way by making sure that we are proving that, um, that we are sustainable and, um, and, and putting in place a climate action plan is, is part of that, um, uh, you know, how we demonstrate that we are um, acting um, uh, responsibly, uh, we are a responsible um, industry, uh, is something that we have worked on um, uh, with, you know, every, every single day. Uh, companies want to be responsible. They work hard to be responsible. And uh, the Climate Action Plan uh, demonstrates that. Um, I think in, in terms of Rio Tinto and the, um, the cultural heritage uh, incident that has uh, occurred, I think that Rio Tinto would be the first to say that, um, you know, that they've made a terrible mistake and um, have apologised unreservedly and um, have sought to re-establish uh, that connection with the PKKP people in, uh, in Western Australia. Um, but the, the, the mining industry has put 30 years of really hard work in establishing long-term relationships uh, with Indigenous people, and um, and you know the we recognise uh, the distress that that's been caused here. It's, it it is a very difficult issue, but it has brought to light the fact that um, that we cannot, under any circumstance, uh, take any part of our relationships um, uh, for granted. Uh, they must, you know, there must be absolutely close consultation on the ground um, and uh, you know if we do that um, and make sure that there is uh, fairness and balance in decision making then I think that we get what um, what everyone wants to set out to achieve and that is economic independence uh, for Indigenous peoples um, and uh, um, a strong economic and social uh, and environmental contribution by the mining industry. Tanya, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks very much, Peter, for having me. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be looking at another person who I think will be a great example for, for you and everyone out there who really wants to succeed. Thanks for joining us. Britain time! Britain time! <laughs>